Welcome back to Over the Top, a Great War podcast. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Welcome back, welcome back, welcome back. Anybody recognize that theme? It's from the theme song to Welcome Back, Cotter, and its first episode released about 58 years after the Battle of Ain took place, which is why we're here for this episode. And by the way, YouTube the intro to Welcome Back, Cotter, and see just how unappealing Brooklyn looked in 1975. It looks like a dystopia of broke wise guys and bell bottoms. Place looks horrible. Couldn't think of a place I'd rather not be than in Brooklyn in 1975. But enough about that. I'm not even sure why I brought that up because it has absolutely nothing to do with this podcast. I did watch the movie 1917, but I'm going to wait for the end of this episode for my review. Oh, and one more big announcement for the show. Are you ready for this? I'm back to drinking alcohol. That's right. I'm enjoying a nice old-fashioned for this episode. And let me tell you how I make my old-fashions. A lot of people do them different. I've had good ones. I've had some okay ones. Most people take a fancy sugar cube and they'll mulch it with some bitters. Put the whiskey in. I mean, you can really fancy it up. Here's the way I do mine. And after, after tested many recipes, this is what I'm. This is my go-to. I do four dashes of bitter. I do a half ounce of Luxardo, which is a Italian cherry liqueur, followed with two ounces of bourbon. I usually use Bullet Bourbon or Bullet Rye Whiskey. This time I'm using Buffalo Trace, which it's good. I don't dislike it. And here's the kicker. You got to do that orange peel. You got to peel off a little bit of that orange, get fancy, spray a little bit in there, rub it around the rim of the glass. And enjoy. Which is what I'm doing for this episode. So there's that good news. But folks, you know why we're here. We're not here to talk about John Travolta playing some guy named Vinnie Barbarossa or my liver. We're here to talk about the Great War. On the last episode, we left off with the French and the BEF driving the German 1st and 2nd Army from the Marne back to the River Aisne. The first Battle of the Marne was over and done. This was the first real loss for the Germans, which put them in retreat. Well, wait, maybe retreat isn't the correct wording to describe the situation. Pulling back to regroup is more accurate. And the reason I'm making a difference between retreat and pulling back is because if you look at a map of France focusing on Paris and the eastern regions, looking at the River Marne and the River Aisne, you'll see the two aren't really that far from each other. Chateau Thierry is a small town slightly northeast from Paris sitting on the River Marne. I'm going to guesstimate the Aisne is roughly around 100 kilometers from there. That's not far considering the distance they've already traveled from the start of the war. This was more of Bulow and Kluck pulling back from the Marne to regroup and repair the situation. The sole purpose for the pullback was to close the gap between the two armies. But nonetheless, they did lose the first battle of the Marne. There's also one more thing the loss at the Marne did for the German Imperial Army. It brought to an end the command of General Helmuth von Moltke the Younger as the Chief of General Staff. Moltke had suffered a stroke just prior to the outbreak of the war, so his health wasn't exactly the best going into this. 
Most men his age, they don't have a stroke and then become chief of staff for an entire army. By the time the Marne ended, he was a man consumed with stress and guilt for all the lives lost. He was sent back to Germany to work at headquarters, but his health continued to decline and Moltke passed away in Berlin on the 18th of June, 1916. General Erich von Falkenhayn replaced Moltke as the chief of general staff and Falkenhayn isn't the type to cry home to his wife. Falkenhayn was ruthless. Now, when the German first and second pulled back, the BEF and French weren't exactly in a rush to give chase. The first battle of the Marne literally was like a Rocky vs. Apollo Creed boxing match. They were both bloody, bruised, one would get knocked down, get back up and knock the other down, and so on. It was a constant exchange of punches. Both were holding on by a thread. The winner was the side who held out the longest. There were dead soldiers everywhere. The Allies also needed to regroup. I feel so wrong for saying Allies, but this is what historians have them labeled as. So if you hear me say Allies, you know who I'm referring to. A BEF captain describes the situation saying, quote, Everywhere the same hard, grim, pitiless signs of battle and war. I have had a belly full of it. Those who were in South Africa say that that was a picnic to this and the strain is terrific. No wonder if after a hundred shells have burst over us, some of the men want to get back into the woods for rest. Ghastly, absolutely ghastly. And whoever was in the wrong in the matter which brought this war to be is deserving of more than he can ever get in this world. Captain Charles Patterson, 1st South Wales Borderers, 3rd Brigade, 1st Division, 1st Corps. End quote. That captain was talking about the Second Boer War when he mentioned South Africa. Apparently, that was mere child's play compared to this. The scene of death was appalling, and the men needed a short time to pull themselves back together. This also gave the German first and second time to prepare defensive positions along the Chemin des Dames, which runs east-west along the Aisne. The Germans also dug their defensive positions on the north bank, which gave them the higher ground advantage. The river Aisne is around 150 feet across and about 15 feet deep. Where the BEF was going to cross, there were 12 bridges, but the Germans had hastily destroyed them. Or they at least thought they did because by them being in a rush, they didn't completely destroy them. Some were still intact. Some of the explosives failed to detonate. This gave the British sappers enough room to rebuild for a crossing. A sapper is a combat engineer. This is also when the weather began to change for the worse. It was becoming unseasonably cold with constant downpours of rain. On September 12th, the BEF in a forced march began approaching the Aisne. Around 2000, which is 8 p.m. for those who aren't savvy to military time, sappers began arriving at the bridges of Venizel. Their job was to survey the damage that had been done and fix what could be salvaged giving the soldiers a place to cross. They discovered that the Germans did indeed have difficulty blowing one of the bridges as only two of their charges went off. Some elements of the bridge had been severed but the concrete road was still overall intact, which would allow the soldiers to cross in a single file line. 
Second Lieutenant Tennyson of the 1st Rifle Brigade wasn't exactly excited when his men were ordered forward across the bridge. They had already marched 27 miles in pouring rain to get to the Aisne. Now they were told to push forward. He later explained the situation in his own words, saying, quote, We were about to settle down for the night, having taken off some of our wet clothes. When the order came, we were to move out at once. Tired as we could be, and a mournful sight to look at, being still very wet. We paraded at 10 p.m. and had about another eight-mile march in a pouring rain until we reached the River Aisne at a place called Venezel. Here we found that the bridge over the river had been blown up, but the Germans had done it so badly that they left one girder which was still holding the left side of the bridge partially together. It seemed to us all an absolute risky slapdash proceeding. However, about 1 a.m., the whole of the 11th Brigade went over the bridge one by one in the middle of the pitch-black night in the pouring rain. The bridge, which was some 60 feet above the river, quivered and shook as every man went over. But luckily it bore us and eventually the whole brigade got across, though it was a pretty dangerous proceeding. The men were so tired they fell asleep as they stood or marched, and one felt oneself walking along and reeling like a drunken man. End quote. By 3 a.m. on the 13th of September, the 11th Brigade made it across the River Aisne and had pushed up the steep side of the escarpment. The German defensive trenches, however, were free from any danger as the men crossed over. Second Lieutenant Tennyson went on to describe the situation as rather calm up until around 9.30 a.m. They then got a surprise, saying, quote, Everything went more or less calmly till around 9.30 a.m., when our own guns spotted us in our waterproof sheets from the opposite side of the river, and thinking we were Germans, started shelling us with lightite. Of course, our general, I imagine, had never let these gunners know that we had crossed the river. These shells were particularly well aimed, and though we tried to signal them who we were, the shells came thicker and thicker until my captain, Jimmy Brownlow, signaled to me to retire where he was. Across this open field we went, doubling as fast as we could, and the shells kept falling all amongst us. We lost a very good corporal, acting Corporal Greg Gregory, a signaler, who had his head blown off right close to me, and three men severely wounded, as well as one or two others killed, and several more wounded. My servant Welch, who was close to Gregory when he was killed, had all his hair stained absolutely yellow by the lightite, which was still that color for weeks afterwards and couldn't get it off. End quote. Lightite is a high explosive that contains picric acid. Picric acid is a highly explosive, organic, yet toxic compound used in many of the British artillery shells at the beginning of the war. This compound can become very unstable when introduced to certain alloys like copper or iron. Also, a servant refers to an orderly, which just about all commission officers had during the Great War. They were later referred to as Batman. A Batman would drive the officer's vehicle, prepare his uniform, run messages between other officers, act as a bodyguard, and even dig the officer's foxhole. Hence the word servant. The morning of September 13th, the Connaught Rangers from the 1st Corps dug in along the bank of the river to cover the rest of its brigade's crossing. They then, too, crossed the river and ascended the sides of the ridge onto a plateau where they reached the deserted village of Soupierre 
around 2100 or 9 p.m. By the way, not all the men successfully crossed these bridges. Some of the men plunged 60 feet into the river, which became their final resting place after drowning. When the men of the 2nd Corps crossed the bridge at Veli, they started taking fire by German heavy guns. Royal artillery batteries began deploying and punching back, but quickly found themselves outgunned by the Huns. The German superior artillery was becoming a problem. Just another sign of what this battle had in store for the BEF. But at this point, cresting the ridge of Chemin de Dômes was their first objective. Joffre and Sir Jean were completely caught off guard by the Germans at the Aisne. They believed Kluck and Bulow were still in retreat. They had no idea that the 1st and the 2nd Army were going to stop and make a stand at the river. Poor weather prevented Allied pilots from reporting any change in movements. The Germans' main point for pulling back to the Aisne was to close the gap between Klukes and Bulow's troops. This gap was closed by the 7th Reserve Corps under the command of General Johann von Zwell. The men arrived in time to take their place in the defensive positions on the heights of the Chemin de Dômes. But this was no easy task. An officer from the 7th Reserves describes it saying, quote, The hurricane force winds continue to blow. It was as though we were on the steps of Russia rather than sunny France. We were falling asleep on our feet and we were fearful that we could fall asleep. Voices came from the rear. Slow down. We have lost contact. At every such halt, men would fall to the ground in a deep sleep. Some were overcome by exhaustion and lay collapsed on the ground, but the majority stuck it out. The first glimmer of dawn announced the arrival of morning. The cloudburst eased a little, then reduced to a drizzle. There was a wood to our front, which, as we passed through it, provided some protection from the icy wind. Would the troops be able to go into battle after such a strenuous forced march like this? Major Maywald, 2nd Battalion, 159th Infantry Regiment, 28th Brigade, 14th Reserve Division, 7th Reserve Corps. End quote. Having the high ground was such a great position for the Huns' defense that the commanders were getting the motivation back and were already considering resuming the offensive. These positions would become a severe obstacle for both the BEF and the French. Think about this. You've got the high ground. You're dug in. You're somewhat rested. And more importantly, you close the gap that created this mess. All you have to do is spot the allies, shoot, take cover, shoot some more, take cover, and watch your heavy artillery guns go to work. Not a bad position to be in at this point in time. For the BEF... You just forced march over 27 miles in a downpour. You haven't rested, and now you're supposed to crest the ridge which is being defended by the Germans. Not such a good position to be in at this point in time. And right about now, if you're an officer leading your men across the Aisne, which you were told by higher-ups that the Germans shouldn't be there, then BAM! Smack dab in your face, you run right into them. Can you imagine the frustration? especially just leaving the Marne, again, more fighting. Is Christmas near? Again, 
The higher-ups said this would be a quick war and that the men would be home by Christmas. An officer from the Northamptonshire's regiment describes the situation as they got to the high ground above the Moulins, saying, quote, The ground here was dead ground from the enemy, and we could not be seen by them. About 150 yards beyond the road, the gradient began to flatten out, and it was soon pretty evident that we had now been seen. Everything seemed to open on us at once. Rifles, machine guns, artillery, etc. The noise was deafening. The rifle and machine gun bullets made a noise like a stock whip being cracked in one's ear as they passed. The shrapnel seemed worse. It never seemed to stop. Nothing seemed to stop. Men were falling now right and left. It seemed like miles that we advanced, whereas it was only about 300 yards. We could see no shells from our guns bursting over the enemy, and we were cursing them accordingly. On we went until we got to the skyline, to find the Germans entrenched almost at our feet. The German machine gun fire was terrific and incessant. It would have been an utter madness to try to advance any further, as even to raise one's head brought a storm of bullets immediately. We lay where we were for about 20 minutes, not knowing what to do. Then the rain stopped and the mist began to clear, and presently, to our joy, shrapnel started to burst about 20 to 30 yards in front of us, right over the German trenches. Our guns were in action at last, and making the most wonderful practice. Lieutenant Evelyn Needham, 1st Northamptonshire Regiment, 2nd Brigade, 1st Division, 1st Corps. End quote. The 2nd Brigade was in fierce fighting now. The 1st Guards Brigade was moving to take up a position left on the 2nd. As the 1st Loyal North Lancashires emerged onto a plateau, they too came under fierce fire. But despite the heavy casualties being inflicted on them, the men of the 2nd Brigade captured a sugar factory building and began to dig shallow trenches in the fields on the morning of the 13th. But would these trenches be enough for the BEF? The Germans attacked in mass formations. They managed to get within 200 yards of the 2nd Brigade. The Huns unleashed walls of lead. Men were falling everywhere. The Tommies began to dig themselves further and further into the earth. Men were literally clawing desperately into the earth to get down lower. Not only is their manpower starting to look low, so was their ammo. They were ordered to pick up all ammo they could from the dead. Men were becoming pinned down and some were being driven back. With a thick layer of fog, the fields around the sugar factory turned into a killing zone. A lieutenant describes the situation as two machine gun teams laid down some lead on a German trench. He said, quote, Suddenly, to my intense excitement, I observed the German trenches on my right filled with troops prepared to repulse the attack of the South Wales borders. As the range was only about 700 to 800 yards, the execution was terrible. Eventually, the Germans could stand it no longer, and breaking from their trenches, ran back like a football mob, both my guns pumping into them as hard as they could fire. I then saw a most beautiful exhibition of shooting by the 113th Field Battery, which was supporting us in the valley below. As soon as the enemy broke from their trenches, the guns opened up on them with shrapnel. The slaughter was terrific. Lieutenant George Melville, 2nd Welsh Regiment, 3rd Brigade, 1st Division, 1st Corps, end quote. The Huns killed by these guns were more than likely mowed down by the Vickers machine gun. 
303 water-cooled automatic gun produced by Vickers Limited for the British Army in 1912. One gun team usually consisted of around four to eight men, depending on MET-T, which stands for Mission, Enemy, Time, Terrain, and Troops Available. This was an acronym I learned in the Army, and I still use this today. The acronym is pretty self-explanatory. One would fire, one would feed the ammunition, and others would carry spare parts and ammo. And what that translates to is this. The more men the team had, the more ammo the team had. However, that all depended on Met T, the situation. An ammunition box for the Vickers, which contained 225 rounds, weighed 22 pounds. Add that to the already 40 to 60 pounds of equipment they had, along with the 25 mile plus force marches, now in the rain, yeah, not fun. The gun itself weighed around 25 to 30 pounds, and the tripod weighed around 45 pounds. And because it was water-cooled, it could be fired for a long period of time. It's rumored that one machine gun corps fired the Vickers for 12 hours straight. That's extreme. I don't know if I fully believe 12 hours. That barrel is boiling that water. In my days, our gun teams used the M240 machine gun, which was an improvement to the M60. It's a gas-operated machine gun which fires 7.62mm belt-fed rounds. The M240 isn't new. It's actually been used by the Air Force since the 70s. But the need for a replacement for the M60, the Army made modifications to the 240 giving it a bipod and a tripod, which they then called the M240 Bravo and the M240 Golf. And nowadays there's probably several newer versions of the M240. Our gun teams consisted of a gunner, assistant gunner, and an ammo bearer. They would carry spare ammo, spare parts for the gun, spare barrels because the barrel would literally be glowing red after so many rounds and they would do a quick switch out for a cooled barrel. I've been next to the gun many a times when a gun team switched out a glowing red barrel and placed it next to me in a puddle so it could cool off and the water would just start bubbling. Another machine gun used by both the British and the Russians, though somewhat outdated at this point, was the Maxim machine gun. Invented by a British man named Haram Stephen Maxim in 1884, this weapon was used during the colonial wars between 1886 and 1914. However, by the time the Great War kicked off, most of the British Army had adopted the new and improved Vickers. At this point, the 2nd Connaught Rangers took up positions on two sides of the La Cure de Sapur farm. Sapur is a commune along the Aisne, it basically was a chateau with a church and a small commune. The Connaught Rangers, dubbed the Devil's Own, were an Irish light infantry regiment of the British Army. After taking up positions at the Sapir farm, they became heavily exposed to German counterattacks. A captain from the Rangers describes the situation, saying, quote, By nine o'clock, we were in the midst of the hottest fight so far witnessed in the battalion. We had no cover of any description and the ground was perfectly flat for 800 to 900 yards in front of us and for 500 to 600 yards behind us. 
It was the first time that most of us had been under real heavy infantry fire. There was one constant crackle of the firing, and the hiss of the bullets was like the hiss of steam escaping. At about 10 o'clock, the company on our right, which had lost its commander and most of its officers, was forced back to the wood so that both my flanks were exposed. I ordered the left half company to retire, and as soon as they got up, the German fire became simply appalling. The right half company, with which I myself was, kept up as rapid fire as we could until the other half had got back about a hundred yards. They then got down and opened fire whilst we retired. In this way we got back about 300 yards to where there was some cover of sorts, and there we started improving the cover with our entrenching tools. Captain Ernest Hamilton, 2nd Connaught Ranger, 5th Brigade, 2nd Division, 1st Corps, end quote. There's a theme developing here. Are you picking up on this? Men with entrenching tools, scraping the earth for cover? Eventually, the 4th Guards Brigade would arrive and take up positions on all sides of the farm. They began counterattacking with the Rangers, and eventually they retook the farm, but not without taking mass casualties. It became a scene of slaughter. Captain Hamilton continued to describe the situation, saying, quote, I and two other officers went back to the farm. There were some 150 wounded men of my own regiment. There were about 250 of the Guards Brigade, besides 200 Germans. In a house belonging to the farm, were some 20 wounded officers and six wounded German officers. Dead men were laying about in the yard, and just outside the gate of the courtyard, there was a whole pile of dead. About 300 yards in front of them were piles and piles of German dead. End quote. The BEF First Corps had suffered 3,500 casualties on September 14th. That's just about double the amount of casualties suffered by the BEF Second Corps at the Battle of Mons just about three weeks earlier. There was no more retreating. This was attack after attack on all sides of the Western Front at this point. They had to go toe-to-toe with their enemy, and it was extremely brutal for both sides. Down the line, the Second Corps achieved nothing of great importance, but they too took heavy losses. The French Sixth Army, along with the BEF's Third Corps, failed with any further movements after encountering strong German defensive positions. The French 5th Army had more success to the right of the BEF 1st Corps, securing the capture of Berriabach and the city of Reims. Berriabach is another small commune along the Aisne, and Reims is a rather large city. The proper way to say Reims is Reims, but most just say Reims. I actually got shit from a friend about the right way to say it, but I'm just going to say Reims to keep this simple. Reims Cathedral, which is called Notre Dame de Reims, that I almost said Reims, Reims, is an absolute beautiful and impressive cathedral. I love visiting old cathedrals and churches when I travel. I like to just admire the craftsmanship alone. You can still see charred areas of this cathedral today. The construction on this church started in the 13th century, and it's massive. I personally found it more impressive than Notre Dame de Paris. Notre Dame means Our Lady, so there's many Notre Dames around France. The cathedral was severely damaged by the war, and reconstruction began immediately in 1919. I highly recommend visiting Reims in the cathedral. Also, there are several chateaus around the area. Maybe you can drop the wife off, 
why you nerd out on history. I'm just saying there's options. Now something big is about to happen along the Aisne. Sir John French assessed the situation at 2300, 11 p.m., and gave orders to his three corps commanders that the men were to entrench where they stood. This decision was entirely endorsed in orders received from Joffre a couple hours later, saying, quote, It seems as if the enemy is once more going to accept battle in prepared positions north of the Aisne. In consequence, it is no longer a question of pursuit, but a methodical attack, using every means at our disposal and consolidating each position in turn as it is gained. End quote. This dreadful day of September 14, 1914, brought to an end the open warfare along the Aisne and the Western Front. The BEF began digging trenches. However, they weren't naive. They knew the Germans were doing the same. These actions were also happening along the French-German lines all the way from Alsace to the Aisne. However, this wasn't the birth of trench warfare. This is just when it began for the Great War. In fact, trench warfare dates back to medieval times, and more popular with the American Civil War towards the latter part of it. Both Union and Confederate soldiers had enough of sitting in the open like ducks waiting for them to be plucked off. They began to use trenches as cover. The style of fighting in the open, like history's previous battles, became extinct on this day in 1914. But don't be fooled. This doesn't mean an end to the carnage. By no means... Fuck no, it doesn't mean that. It's only going to get worse. I know I keep repeating this, but it's true. As we get further and further along with this war, it really is only going to get worse. The bodies keep stacking up, and men, i.e. in this case soldiers or higher-ups, will come up with more clever ways to increase the number of kills he can inflict on his enemy. I'm going to go back to a statement that I made on the last episode about humans being the most violent species and that I believe we're hardwired to only absorb so much before we crack. There's a breaking point in everyone. And I know this is an opinion, but I stand by this. World War I will bring out the worst of man's thirst to destroy one another, and it didn't stop there. We didn't learn. World War II will give birth to the atomic bomb, and man again yearned for bigger, more powerful, which birthed the hydrogen bomb. The soldiers from the BEF, French, and German armies on the front lines are becoming a little unsettled by all the dead. Hell, I should also include the Russians, and not to forget the Austro-Hungarians on that front. After all, they're fighting too. They're witnessing the death of friends and comrades at an unprecedented level. Heads being blown off, a battlefield littered with mutilated corpses. It's taking its toll. They're still trying to make sense of the carnage they just experienced at the Marne, and now they have fresh bodies stacking up. And now they're digging in to prepare for something that's obviously going to be long and drawn out. If you're a soldier in any of these armies, and we'll use the Western Front since this is what episode we're on, you had to have been asking yourself questions like, am I going to be next? How will I die? Will I be shot? Or will I be ripped apart by a machine gun? Or have my limbs ripped off by artillery? Will it be quick? Or will it be long and painful? Will it be my headless body my pals are staring at in horror? Or will it be my body lying there decaying with maggots weaving in and out? Or worse, 
Will it be my body to be consumed by the ever-hungry rats? Will it be my dead body that will be the image to cause many bad dreams? How will my loved ones take it? These are just some of the questions among many that these soldiers were asking themselves at this point, and it's disturbing them down to their bones. And I don't want to trigger any bad memories or make people go in any dark place. So if you're vulnerable, please skip ahead about 10 seconds or so. I want you to think about the most disturbing thing you've ever witnessed. I know mine. Now think about that, but having to relive it day after day at an extreme level under horrible conditions with no end in sight. The thought of that is frightening. This is what those men were going through. Again, that glory of war. Those young men who sought it out. For those who've been in this from the start, that paper of glory had been crumbled up, wiped their asses with it, and thrown it into a shithole by now. Think about that. And I'm going to start wrapping this episode up right here. This episode covered the German 1st and 2nd Army's pullback to the northern higher ground of the Aisne, the BEF abruptly coming into contact with them after crossing the river, the two armies again battling it out, and the birth of a new style of warfare for these armies, trench warfare. It is crazy. I thought the Aisne would be a one episode, but there's more. So the Battle of the Aisne will be in two parts, which is good, especially if you're enjoying my podcast because this means more episodes. All right, and now for my short review of the movie 1917, which I highly recommend you go see, and I absolutely loved it. Sam Mendes is a great director. He's directed the last two Bond movies, Spectre, Skyfall. He's also directed that movie um, Road to Perdition. I thought that was really good. I thought the way he did 1917 was amazing. That one-shot style, the long, continuous shot, that shooting style, it was my favorite scene in the movie of No Man's Land, I thought it was perfect. I just don't see any way you could have done it any better. I loved it. The city scene reminded me of the rape of Belgium in Louvain. When I read about that and then I seen the movie, it was like, wow, that is, that's probably what Belgium looked like back then. Oh, you know, I just don't want to spoil it for anybody. I really want you to go out there and see it. I loved it. I thought it was great. There's some really just just gnarly graphic scenes and when he's going through there through no man's land there's a lot of action it's a great story overall my overall score for the movie out of 10 i'm gonna give it a 9.2 i think that's solid i think that's what it deserves i'd like to say thank you to everyone for their continued support of the show as always you can contact me through the show's email at ottgwpodcast at gmail.com you can get all my episodes on my webpage at www.ottgwpodcast.com and on multiple podcast hosts like Stitcher Radio, Google Play Music, Google Podcasts, Spotify Radio, and more. I did have a gentleman reach out to me requesting if I can get the show on Himalaya Podcast. Unfortunately, this is a paid host where I have to pay to get my podcast on, and being that I'm already paying Podbean to be my main host, which gives me my RSS feed, I don't want to pay for another. Basically, if I'm requested to have a show added to a paid site, I can't do that because I'm already paying a host along with other costs it takes and makes the show. All the money I put into this podcast comes from my own pocket. Platforms like Stitcher, Google, Spotify, 
and many more. You don't have to pay to have the show picked up. I hope that clears that up. Anywho, thank you again for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for part two of The Battle of the Ain. Take care, everyone. Au revoir.